So if you have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to turn to the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 19. We'll be looking at the second half of that book, uh, or that chapter rather, 19, chapter 19, verses 21 to 41. And the title for this morning is The Riot in Ephesus. The Riot in Ephesus, Acts chapter 19. So we've obviously been tracking with Paul. He's been in Ephesus for a little while, a couple of years, and uh, it's coming to a point of a riot. And so we're going to read about that and study together this morning. And uh, so let let me read it to you, and then we'll dive right in. Verse 21, and after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but all in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger Not only that this trade of ours come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, the the Macedonians who were uh, Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, "'Great is Artemis of the Ephesians!' And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that they are in the city of the Ephesians is the, in, is the temple, that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you see anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to sing out songs of praise and worship, to read your word today, and to learn more about the causes of this riot in Ephesus and the protection of Paul and the believers there, and just how when we preach the truth, we know that we'll face great adversity. So encourage us today to learn what you want us to learn from this text as we dive into it together, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, persecution has always been one of God's tools to grow his church. While it may be true that persecution in one sense is a ploy of the devil, it is also true in another sense that persecution is planned out by God. Nothing happens in this world outside of God's complete control. And we read about that in Acts chapter 2. In fact, flip back over to chapter 2, verse 23, where it says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, 
you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So we see in one sense, persecution is a ploy of the devil, but in another sense, it's really the plan of God, that God desires to do what he's going to do, and in that will come persecution. In fact, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, 10 through 12, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil falsely against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for they so persecuted the prophets who were before you. So we just read, again, throughout Scripture, there will be persecution. We also read in 1 Peter that we should not be surprised. We should not be surprised when Christians face great suffering. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 14 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in the sufferings of Christ, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit, of, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So we have to make sure in our hearts this morning, in our framework of understanding the world and trials and persecution, that we're understanding that it's to be expected. It's something that God ordained. And the early church faced persecution at its very inception. In Jerusalem, that persecution came from organized religion. In fact, I would say the early church was mainly persecuted by the Jews. In fact, we're here in Acts. Look at Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 8, 1 through 3. I'm saying early persecution to the true church began with the Jews, and it started even in verse 1 of chapter 8 with Saul. Remember, Saul is a, is a Jew, and he says, Saul approved of his execution. This is right after Stephen had been stoned to death, and there arose in that city a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Turn to Acts 14, verse 19. Acts 14, 19, a little later in Lystra, persecution was the result of their ignorant paganism. Acts 14, 19 says, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. And then look at Acts 16, 19 and following. That passage is in Philippi, where persecution was the reaction to a great victory over the demonic realm after Paul cast the demon out of that girl uh, that we had, we've talked about a few times, Acts 16, 19. But when her, owner, when her owner saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments of them off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into the prison ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. And then look at Acts 17, verse 5. Acts 17, verse 5. This is in Thessalonica. Thessalonica. Persecution again came from an unruly mob who were urged on by jealous religious leaders. Acts 17, 5. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And we read in Athens, look at Acts 17, 18. So they leave Thessalonica, head to Athens. In Athens, the gospel also faced great opposition of worldly philosophy. Acts 17, 18, it says, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. 
Then from Athens, he moves on to Corinth. And and, in Corinth, as in Jerusalem, the persecution came from Judaism, this time from a Roman court. Look at Acts 18, verse 5 and 6. Acts 18, verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Skip down to verse 12. But when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. All right, we, see, we, we, we know these texts, right? We've worked through the book of Acts, and we, we've seen persecution time and time and time again. And, and wherever the church boldly and faithfully proclaims the gospel, it will face great opposition. That's just a guaranteed fact. When you're bold for Christ, when you stand up against the culture, when you preach Jesus, that he's the only way to heaven, the culture will come against you. And it comes as no surprise then that persecution also arose here in Ephesus. This persecution that we're looking at in Ephesus today comes from really a pseudo-religious materialism. It comes from hardened hearts hypocrisy and hatred, uh, and, and this is what energized the persecution that Paul faces in Ephesus. It was no surprise that Paul would be persecuted. And so shortly after Paul was saved in Acts 9, Ananias, if you remember, commanded, it was commanded to go to Paul, and he prophesied about this. He, he went to Paul, and G- Jesus told him to go to Paul. Remember Acts 9, 15, and 16? The Lord said to him, said to Ananias, when he was going to go lay hands on Paul so he could see again, he said, go, for he, referring to Paul, says, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and before the kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So it's prophesied that Paul would have a a fantastic ministry, taking the gospel to the Gentiles, but he would suffer much. It's impossible. I remember as a young man thinking, well, somehow, maybe, just maybe, if we really love Jesus and we're nice to everybody, the people will see that we're good people and we will never face that kind of persecution or suffering. And I'm just saying to you, the Bible says the exact opposite. You will suffer. You will face persecution at some point and in some way in your life, and it should be of no surprise to us that we will face persecution as well. And we can take heart with what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who live, or indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So I wonder how it's going with you. Maybe you're sitting out there this morning and you're like, okay, I hear what you're saying, but I don't think I've really faced any serious persecution. Maybe you have faced serious persecution. I don't know. I'm asking you to ask yourself. It may, may, could it be that if you're not facing serious persecution, that you're not seriously bold, cutting against the grain of the culture? Could it be that you've been trying a little bit too much to be too friendly? And I, I guess you can't be too friendly, you know, in one regard. But you know what I mean. You're not really to be. You're not ready to be so outspoken that the truth that comes out of your mouth would cut like a knife. Because the truth is, at some point, we've got to be ready to preach the word without apology and to accept whatever persecution comes our way. And again, I just think as Christians in nice, you know, uh, America, like I call sometimes Santa Clarita the Southern Belt, the, um, the Bible Belt of Southern California, because sometimes it feels like that, you know, because we live like pretty nice areas, a lot of churches, we pray for churches every Sunday. We're like, man, we got this. And it's like, well, well are we fighting hard enough? Are we seeking popularity and to be known as the friendship church? Or are we seeking to be known as like, you know what, that church is just like preaching the gospel. That church is adamant about Christ saves. That church is going hard after the Lord. And so this is what we see Paul doing in Ephesus. We, we read last week, he's been preaching for a couple of years and it got so firm and so, so fierce that as we're coming to the end of his ministry in Ephesus, we understand that, that, Paul had used, that God had used Paul there to preach the word. God had used Paul in Ephesus to perform many miracles. God had used Paul in Ephesus as we studied last time to cast out demons all in the name of Jesus. 
And now Paul is ready to transition. Look at Acts 19, 21 and 22. After these events of, of all that he's been doing in Ephesus, preaching the word, casting out demons, now Paul is resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem. And after I've been there, I must go see Rome. There's something in Paul that says, I gotta keep going. I know I'm facing persecution. I know it can be tough, but my ministry's not done. And I've got to head towards Jerusalem, and then I've got to head to Rome. Paul's not afraid. He's not discouraged. He will not be deterred. He wants to accomplish all that God has called him to do. But first, he's got to pass through, verse 22. He's got to go through Macedonia. He's got a couple of helpers, Timothy and Erastus, and he himself is staying in Asia for a little while longer. He's staying there for a little while longer in Ephesus. He's going to go to Jerusalem. Another text talks about there he'll take up a collection for for the saints. And then he's going to head to Rome. And Paul had an intense desire to preach the gospel in, 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 in places where Christ had been named, but they needed to be encouraged and to preach the gospel in places where Christ had never been named. He, he does both. He goes to where churches already exist. There was already a church in Rome that Paul felt compelled to strengthen the saints there. And in fact, Romans 15, 20 says, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. And again, the, the, the church in Rome was a strategic locate, location where Paul insisted that he go there. there. There was already a church, but he wanted to go and expand the, the, the maturity of that church in such a strategic area. In fact, Paul writes this to Rome in Romans 1, 11 through 13. He says, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be fully encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but have thus far been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So Paul's saying, I wanted to get there, but before I could get there, I needed to follow my course. And so in the meantime, again, Paul is, is working with Timothy. He's working with Erastus. Timothy was obviously one of Paul's friends, one of his disciples, one of his coworkers, one of his spiritual protégés who had been ministering in Corinth. And then we know Erastus. He was some individual who also traveled with Paul. And in Romans 16, 2 Timothy 4, 2, he's mentioned there is traveling together with Paul towards Rome. And so Paul's Travel plans to Rome, again, had been temporarily um, displaced because of the opportunity that was still happening in Ephesus. And Paul, he says, I'm going to stay in Ephesus for a little while longer. He writes this to the, first, to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 16, 8 and 9. He says, for I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me. And there were many adversaries. So he's saying there's an open door for the gospel, but I'm facing many adversaries. Let me wrap up what I'm doing in Ephesus, then I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and then get there, go to Rome. So just giving you a little bit of history behind everything. And what I want us to see this morning is as he does stay in Ephesus, even though there's a wide door for the gospel, there's also great persecution. And so this morning, we're going to look at three headings that will describe this riot that does happen at the end of his stay in Ephesus. And we're going to see, number one, the cause of the riot by Demetrius, verses 23 to 27, the chaos of the riot by the Ephesians, verses 28 to 34, and then the closure of the riot by the town clerk, 35, verses 35 through 41. So let's start with number one, and let's dig in right here where Paul is and see the cause of the riot by Demetrius. And your first blank, if you are taking notes, says the fear of losing business. It might say loosing there in your notes, but it should say losing. The fear of losing business, verses 23 through 25. And so about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And so here's what's going on. Demetrius doesn't like it. He doesn't like what Paul's doing. He doesn't like that there, there are many who are following, as verse 23 uh, three says, that they're following the way. 
It's capitalized there, the way, again, a known reference in the early church to Christianity, probably taken from Jesus' words of John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so Demetrius is concerned that many people in Ephesus, a pagan city, a Roman province that was committed to the temple of Diana and to the goddess of Artemis, is going to somehow now these people are getting off track. And this wasn't a, a little thing. They weren't making small inroads into the city, but this was a massive thing. It was a big deal. And things were mounting, and now it was about to explode, as we see here in our passage. In fact, Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, 32, that he fought with beasts at Ephesus. That's what he's talking about probably about this very occasion, that it's like he's fighting with beasts in Ephesus. And we're talking about the opposition that originated with this silversmith named Demetrius, who seemed to be the leader of the guild of silversmiths in Ephesus. Now, a lot of excavations have been done in Ephesus. Some of you guys just traveled to Ephesus uh, from the college uh, here over the break. And um, I've been told, and a little bit of research I've done is that they don't find a whole lot of silver. So some people say, oh, we don't see a whole lot of silver uh, in Ephesus. There's rather uh, earthen pots and there's clay idols and there's other forms there, but not a lot of silver. Um, some people say, well, that, that all got melted down, all of the silver that was there. But there was evidence in, in, in various studies that there was a trade of silversmiths at this time and they were making shrines. They were making silver shrines. These were like little household idols. They're, they're little trinkets. You know, It's the th- stuff that you buy and you stick it on your car or you stick it uh, somewhere in your house as a, as a, you know, as a tourist reminder. People were flocking into Ephesus and they would buy these these little goddesses, these household gods of Artemis, which is the Greek name for that that goddess, or Diana, which is the Roman name. Same God, Artemis, Diana, same God. Artemis is the Greek um, name. Diana is how the Romans refer to her. And she was a fertility goddess. And there was all kinds of, of lewd practices happening in the temple of Artemis. And the silversmiths were making money off this. They were making a buck after this. This was part of their trade. It was part of their profession. And so great fear enters into the heart of Demetrius as he realizes as more and more people are following the way of Christ and the way of Christianity, our business, our numbers are going down. You know, our profits are going down. And so there's great fear of losing their livelihood. You say, Adam, did, did Christianity really make that big of a difference? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it had an Ephesian church there that was growing with power, with the presence of Christ. They had, you know, in the previous chapter after casting out demons, remember everybody brought their books and they burned their books and they were like, we're done with following uh, some, of the, some of the demonic uh, worship and activity. There's a man uh, there by the name of Paul who, who we're talking about who is completely sold out, completely committed to the cause of Christ. And he's been preaching faithfully in that city for a couple of years and it started to make an impact. Uh, Bottom line, Demetrius and the silversmiths needed to make a choice. They were going to either have to commit themselves, uh, you know, to to their trade, or they're going to have to find another job, or they could come to Christ. I mean, they needed to really ask themselves, do they want big business, or do they want to know the Lord of glory? Do they want more money in their pocket, or do they want Jesus reigning in their hearts, Do they want to see more stuff that promotes uh, more sin, or do they want to give up their earthly treasures in order to receive eternal life? At the crux behind all of this, it's not really about Diana. It's about money. Jesus reminds us of this in Mark 8, 35 through 37, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in return for his soul? And so they're saying, hey, we've got to get these guys out of here so we can continue our business, so we can line our pockets with the money that we're making. That's what's going on behind this riot. And not only is there the fear of losing business, we could also add to that, your next blank, the fear of losing a pluralistic religion. 
There was the fear of losing a pluralistic religion, verse 26. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but almost in all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods, lowercase g, made with their hands are not gods. So there's an attack here against Diana, but also the other gods. And this, and this message that Paul is bringing here, the, the gospel in Ephesus, it's making a great economic impact, not only in Ephesus, but all over Asia Minor. Because Paul is teaching, there's only one God. In fact, look back at Acts 17, where we just read through the message on Mars, Mars Hill, Acts 17, verse 24, Paul to the, to the Athenians says, the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He's talking in that message about the God who created the world, the God who doesn't need to be propped up by silversmiths to make idols of them. Paul was teaching that gods made with hands are not real gods. And this is consistent biblical teaching with Isaiah. Turn with me to Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44, this is a well-known text about the, the futility of making idols because they're powerless. Isaiah 44, verse 9, all who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing. Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth, they shall be terrified, they shall be put to shame together. So he's saying, hey, one day, anybody who ever built a god, lowercase g, that has no power, no ability, these people will all be put to shame because they're trying to profit monetarily, but they're not really profiting eternally. Let, look at verse 12. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and he makes it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak tree and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Then he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol and falls down to it, and worships it, and prays to it, and says, deliver me, for you are my God. So he's just saying, the futility is, a person takes a tree, cuts it down, uses half the tree to make firewood, so they can stay warm and make bread, and they take the other half of the tree, and make it into idols, and then they bow down and worship the idols that they make out of the tree, that half of it they just consumed by fire, now the other half they're worshiping, there's futility here. Verse 18, they know not Neither do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. For none considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire, I also baked bread on the coals, I roasted meat and have eaten, and shall I make the rest of it into an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes a deluded heart that has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? So again, he's just saying the futility of idols, there really aren't any other gods but one. Paul emphasizes this in 1 Corinthians. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians 8, let's see what the New Testament says about this whole idea of are there really other gods or are there not? Well, Paul addresses that question in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 4. He says, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. 
and that there is no God but one. So the question again is, are there other gods? According to Paul, in 1 Corinthians 8, he's saying no. They don't have a real existence. They don't really exist. They don't, they're not, they're not really have, they don't really have power. There is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. I think to summarize what Paul is saying is there's not a whole lot of gods. There's really, even though he doesn't say it in this text, there's God and there's Satan. In every dimension of any other religion, any other God, any other focus apart from God is, is not like multiple different gods. It really belongs to one evil power. And it's not one that you can just choose, one of many, like in a pluralistic society. There's God and there's everything else. And so Paul is warning them about that. And, and what's happening again, in, and back to Ephesus, what's happening is they had a fear of losing money, but they also had a fear of losing their pluralistic religion. Because as Rome was spreading, you could pick one God, add it in, pick another place, add that God in, pick another place, add that God in. And Paul is preaching like, look, you've got to get rid of all of them. You, you, can't, you can't have it anywhere in Ephesus. You can't have it anywhere in Asia. And, and then there's the fear, your next blank, there's the fear of losing the reputation of Artemis. There's the fear of them losing the reputation of Artemis, verse 27, and there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the whole world worship. So this, this is an infatuation with their local goddess Artemis. I mean, there was a great temple there. The temple of Artemis took over 220 years to build. That's almost as old as our nation. It took 220 years to build this temple. There was all kinds of practices that would happen in the temple. It was one of the, the uh, seven ancient wonders of the world. And, 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 and Paul is preaching against, obviously, the temple as he preaches Christ. And so Demetrius is first appealing to money, second he's appealing to wanting to keep a pluralistic religion, third he's now appealing to their own beloved goddess of Diana or Artemis. See, he's, he's saying to those in the guild, where is your sense of national pride? By, by the way, he, he's saying here, look, we got to lock arms together in order to defend our goddess. And, and don't let Demetrius fool you again. The real reason behind this, I don't think he's so much a religious person as he is a businessman. And he's getting the idea that, that, that if, if our goddess goes away, our money goes away. Again, I would say his God was money. You, you may not struggle, again, with this exact same temptation of like worshiping silver shrines of another god or goddess, uh, but we all understand the idol of the love of money. We all understand what that can look like. And God's warning about that is replete throughout the scripture. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Just as a reminder, it doesn't say money is evil. The love of money, the desire for money over everything else is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Or how about Jesus in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters for he will either hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So we're seeing the true cause of the riot is really about materialism. It's about pride. It's about this spiritual uh, affection for Artemis. And, and now that we've seen some of these causes of the riot, let's now look at how it gets out of hand. Number two, the chaos of the riot by the Ephesians. The chaos of the riot by the Ephesians. And here's where we read the anger of the mob, your next blank. The anger of the mob, verse 28, says, and when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So here are the people of Ephesus, they get mad. 
and they get angry, and they, they become enraged, and they are beginning to be whipped up into a frenzy. Uh, this, this infuriated crowd demonstrates mindless fury that was running rampant in significant violence that was just a, thrown sto- a stone's throw away. Uh, this, this is typical of the way that the world reacts to Christianity. When Jewish leaders heard of Stephen's masterful sermon in defense of Christ in Acts 7, it says that the Jewish leaders, when they heard that, that they, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. And, and we've seen, you know, behavior in America where there's crowds and riots, just thinking even of the, of the 2020s. Remember the 2020 riots after that horrible uh, year of all kind of rioting and looting and things that were happening? People just began to get angry and they get upset and they want to fight and they want to fight against something. And in this case, they want to fight against Paul, against the preaching of the gospel, and they formed an angry mob. It was Benjamin Franklin who said that a mob was a monster with heads enough but no brains. And that kind of reminds us of like what we saw, how sad it is when people permit themselves to, to be led by a few selfish leaders who manipulate the crowd with an art of, of leading in that way. And Demetrius had made use of these things that the Ephesians loved most, that the honor of their city and the greatness of their goddess in the temple and, and with the money that they were making off of it. And so without even having the help of newspapers or podcasts or cable news channels or social media, he got his propaganda machine going and soon the whole city was in an uproar. Proverbs 14, 29 says, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Proverbs 29, 11, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Or how about Ecclesiastes 7, 9, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. And what's happening here is it's the gospel. The gospel makes people angry because it confronts them with their false religion and with their sin and with their filth. The gospel forces unbelievers to recognize the gross inadequacy of their godless worldview while at the same time exposing the emptiness of their lifestyle. And what we also see here is not only is this crowd angry, but they're confused. Your next blank, the confusion of the mob, verses 29 through 32. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together." So again, the frenzied rioters swarm through Ephesus, causing chaos and disorder. The word confusion here points to a disorderly mob revolt with special implications of uproar and disturbance. And so they're rushing into this amphitheater, which, by the way, has been excavated. Some of you guys who were there uh, last month saw and sat in this theater that could hold 25 to 30,000 people there just on the outskirts of Ephesus. And so Paul is going to be, he's kind of, they're going to drag him in that direction. Paul, along the way, was with Gaius and Aristarchus. In Acts 20, verse 4, we learn that Gaius was from Derbe, a city in Galatia, and Aristarchus was a traveling companion of Paul's from Macedonia and would later set sail with him on his way to Rome. But, but in verse 30 is what I want you to see. We, we see Paul's boldness. We, we see that he's eager to defend the gospel. He was ready to face the crowds. He, he was ready to take on his opponents. But at the end of verse 30, it says the disciples would not let him. And that's just a good reminder of that's why we have friends. You know, that's why we, we work together as fellow Christians with accountability and with a multitude of counselors. That's why I so, I'm so thankful for our elder team that I learn at times to lean on and to listen to so that I don't go out and do something stupid. You know, just recently there was an opportunity for something that I thought may be a good idea. 
and they talked to the elder team about it, and they said, hey, we don't think that's a good idea. We don't think that's safe for you. And I'm like, all right, I need to listen to them. You know, I, I can't just go out, Paul can't just go out there and say, you know what, forget all of you. I'm going out into that crowd to do exactly what I want to do. We've got to learn to lean on each other, to listen to each other. This isn't saying that Paul's a coward or the disciples around him are cowardly. This is saying that those around Paul realized that for him to go before this unruly mob at this particular time would be unwise. Not only would it endanger his life, but it could potentially endanger the life of his companions as well. And even though Paul did not consider his life of any account as dear to himself, as Acts 20.24 says, the other disciples would not allow him to risk his life needlessly at this time. Verse 31 says that even some of the Asiarchs, these were like leaders, noble men and women who also um, had wealth and had influence in the province of Asia, they also were trying to maintain some type of peace in Rome and to honor their emperor. So they also had reached out to Paul. And it's really this kind of behavior of the crowd uh, and having Paul stir, stir them up even more would not bode well for the reputation of Ephesus. So there's lots of people appealing to Paul, don't go in there and don't talk to them, at least not at this time. Verse 32 says different people were crying out for different things. The, the, the crowd itself was completely confused. They're, they're not even sure why they're there. And that's what happens in a mob. You, you have lots of yelling, lots of arguing, lots of politicizing, lots of confusion, lots of chaos I mean, that's what happens. People just get angry and they just start butting heads and they get worked up. And that's what's happening in this crowd. This was not the time for Paul to throw his pearl before the swine. Right? Jesus said in Matthew 7, 6, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. And so we see that the crowd is angry. The crowd is confused. There's also stubbornness, your next blank, the stubbornness of the mob, verses 33 through 34. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. And when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they carried, uh, or excuse me, they cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And so here, the Jews uh, put out a spokesman. His name was Alexander. Somehow, he, he was going to defend the Jews from, from being connected, maybe, with Paul in this riot. I mean, the Jews were also monotheists and strongly opposed idols, uh, idols. so they thrust uh, Alexander out there, but it didn't do any good, right? They, they didn't want to hear from Alexander. They, they weren't sure what, what he was about. This is potentially anti-Semitism also taking over the mob. They refused to listen to Alexander, and, and they continued to chant, as the, these verses say. They chanted in a frenzy for about two hours in one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I mean, they had nothing else to do. When we thought about the riots of 2020, you know, we thought about all the broken glass and looting from all the stores and catching cars on fire and turning them over and just making a mess. Well, in the ancient world, you didn't have any glass to break. They didn't have any cars to turn over. They're in this theater, so they're just yelling. They're just yelling, and it should have been, you know, I'm sure it was exhausting over time, but for like two years, or sorry, two hours, sorry, two hours, they're yelling and chanting, and their chant was one filled with national pride. Their chant was full of defiance against the true and living God. Their chant was exposing what they really valued and where they put their trust, and as long as the temple worship was allowed to continue and they were able to sell these idols, then they were going to be happy. But if any of those things stopped, then they were going to be very upset as they're crying out. And, and in some ways, this sadly reminds us a little bit about what happened to Jesus, right? In his trial before Pilate in John 19, when they cried out, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Again, in Matthew 27, the governor says, well, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus? They said, Barabbas, what should I do with Jesus? Let him be crucified. Why? What has he done? But they shouted all the more with one voice, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw he was gaining nothing, but rather a riot was beginning, he took water, washed his hands to the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. You see to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. Then he released Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him over to be crucified. Well, a similar thing is happening here in Ephesus. There's a mob. There's a crowd. They have a choice to make. 
And this time it's a little different, right? The crowd is choosing Artemis over Jesus. They want Artemis to reign freely without interference, and they want the name of Jesus and the teaching of the gospel to be bound. They want Artemis to live forever, and they want the name of Jesus to be banished. They are choosing money over what really matters. They're choosing sinful practices over being saved and sanctified. They're holding on to what's popular instead of really hearing about the prophet, priest, and king. And this moves us to our final heading, number three, the closure of the riot by the town clerk. Your next blank says there is no reason to worry, at least according to the clerk in verses 35 and 36. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis? and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky, seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. So the town clerk, kind of like the town mayor, so they, they didn't respect uh, Alexander, but they do listen to the town mayor, the town clerk, and they may have believed here, this, this thing that he's talking about is that they believe that Artemis was not some man-made goddess. They believe that her image fell from heaven. I mean, some of the translations here, the NASB says that, that she fell from heaven. The King James Version says that she fell from Jupiter. The New King James Version says she fell from Zeus. And so the question is, well, what's happening? She fell from the sky. What's going on here? In fact, Moulton's book on astronomy says it is believed that the image of Diana at Ephesus, the sacred shield of Numa at Rome, and the image of Venus at Cyprus were all meteorites. So most likely there was a meteorite that came in, hit the ground, and somehow they took that as being a goddess who now they were going to worship. And they were saying because of that true fact that potentially a meteorite had hit the ground, they were like, nobody can argue with us. We don't have to be afraid. That's what the town clerk's saying. Nobody can mess with Artemis. We know her existence is real. He thinks that he has an indefensible argument. He thinks that he has a rock-solid case. He thinks that it's evident for all to see. And the only problem with the town clerk's position is that it goes against scripture. That's the problem. He's like, the rock fell, and then they made up the whole story behind it. The rock maybe really did fall, but we understand that it doesn't jive with Scripture. And so Paul gives a greater argument from the Bible about how we're to understand by, by saying and teaching again there's only one God. It, it's the God of the universe. It's the creator God. This is what Romans 1 is all about, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who they... Uh, by whom their unrighteousness, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So this guy thinks that they have a lock solid case. We think that we have a lock solid case. And so you got to make a choice. Are you going to go with the meteorite that fell from the sky, human wisdom, human inference, human religion? Or are you going to go with what God's word says about what it's all about. And so that's the discussion that's being had here. And then we see next, in, in your next blank, there's no reason to arrest these men. Verse 37 says, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. Pretty interesting here. The teaching that Paul did did not evidently go directly against the goddess of Artemis. You say, well, what was he preaching? He's preaching the gospel. They were not necessarily focused so much on downing Artemis as they were on exalting Christ. And so the town clerk had some respect. Like, look, these people, they're not, they're not talking bad about Diana. I'm, I'm not saying there's never a time to talk bad about a false god. There is a time to be polemical. But there's also a time to make sure that we're exalting Christ in our teaching. And that's the approach that Paul took in Ephesus. At the end of the day, it was all about preaching Christ. Jesus said, but I, when I be lifted up, would draw all men to myself. Paul says, I know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then we see in verse 38 and 39, there is no reason to handle the situation illegally. Therefore, if Demetrius and his craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. So he's just saying, hey, let this be handled in the appropriate way. 
We got to dismantle this riot. Your next blank. There is no reason to risk Pax Romana, the Latin term for the peace of Rome. We can't upset what's going on here because if we upset Rome, we could lose our privileges. Verses 40 and 41, for we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today since this, there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Again, the official warned of the political implications of the commotion of the city that they were hard-pressed to give a reasonable explanation to Rome about the riot And so the city would then be at risk of losing some of its liberties. So Paul, in essence, was cleared of any misdeeds or religious um, faults or being a political rebel. It's interesting how God can use, in this situation, an unbeliever to protect his, his apostle. God used an unbeliever in this situation to protect Paul and to protect and enable Paul to continue his ministry. And we see that in this passage, the Ephesian believers weathered the storm of persecution unleashed against them. They, they made it through the riot. They continue to preach Christ, and the church of Ephesus will certainly play a prominent role in church history for several more centuries. Look at the take-home section with me, if you will, at the bottom of your notes. Do you believe that it is true that all who desire to live for Christ will be persecuted? Look, you may not be thrown into an, uh, a theater and, and, be, and have a crowd chanting against you for two hours, but at some point, you're going to face persecution. And I just want you to understand that the, the, the stronger you are in how you articulate truth, the stronger the persecution will be. And that as you do that, you can rest assured that God will be glorified no matter what the outcome is. How will, you call, how will God, your next uh, blank or outline or uh, application, how will God use persecution in your life to grow you and to build your confidence in him? So hopefully a story like this encourages you God will protect you. God will be there with you. And if God allows you to be a martyr for the faith, then you're in heaven. That's even better. So, you know, to live as Christ and to die as gain, as Paul said. But how will God use persecution in your life as he has throughout the centuries to grow and mature the church? And then last, do you spend more time exalting Christ than bashing other religions? Again, from this text, at this time, Paul was not all about bashing Diana and Artemis as much as we would want him to, right? I'm sure at some point in the two years, he said some things that were pretty clear. But the main point is he just preached Christ. He exalted Christ. He elevated the preaching of Christ in such a way that the town clerk is like, look, this guy's not said anything against him. He's just preaching Christ. And I think there's something that we ought to think about there. There's something we ought to think at least, where do you spend more of your time? Exalting Christ or bashing other religions? Let's close together in prayer. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to just read this, this passage, this narrative this, about this riot. And I pray that you would just remind us of our responsibility as Christians is to preach Christ. At the end of the day, no matter what's happening, we want to preach Christ and him crucified. And I pray as you prepare our hearts for communion this morning that we would look to Christ, that we would exalt Christ in our hearts and that you would be glorified in our efforts, in our ministry, in our trust, our faith, our witness, our example, that Christ would be glorified in all things. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.